welcome back to Be There with Dali Loudspeakers, the podcast that looks behind the mixing desk at the hidden talent that makes music great. It's brought to you by Dali, manufacturers of fine loudspeakers from Denmark, designed and built for the ultimate in sound fidelity, all in admiration of music. These podcasts tie in with Dali's own music magazine, also called Be There and edited by me, Andrew Harrison. Be There, the magazine, features stories from the studios, interviews with legendary producers Ken Scott and John Leckie, and a lot more. And you can get a free copy from the Dali Facebook page, facebook.com slash dali.loudspeakers. I've got two guests here with me today to talk about some of the things in Be There magazine. They're also going to name their unsung studio heroes and add to our ever-expanding Tidal playlist of the best-produced tracks in the entire history of music. The playlist is on the Dali Facebook page too for your playing convenience. Sean Pattenden is a graduate of the Smash Hits magazine School of Music Journalism Excellence. She got a job there aged 18 when she sent her fanzine into the editor. <laughs> Subsequently, she worked for the NME, The Face and The Guardian. And she once wrote a book called How to Make It in the Music Business. How did that work out, Sean? How's that planning Very out? Very well. I think, I think a lot of people followed my advice there. Yeah. It, should it be handed out to young bands? <laughs> I think it should be, yes. It was, uh, it was updated four times. We had to try and make it relevant. Mm. Yeah. It, I think you put that book out almost immediately. Downloads appeared, didn't you? <laughs> no, it was a few years, and then we inserted ah. the downloads chapter <laughs> and yes. the internet chapter. The inter- so it kept going on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, afterword, postscript, <laughs> the internet. It's <laughs> true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Smash Hits was the great and possibly the most powerful music magazine in Britain in its day, but it never looked too hard at the technicalities of the music, did it? Things, it was either great or it was rubbish. Um, when a musician started talking about technicalities, what happened is usually the type got smaller and smaller in font size until it just sort of dribbled off the page because yes. um, we, we deemed it boring but actually it's quite interesting and I think we could have done a lot more with it really. Did artists ever get upset that you didn't want to talk about their carefully created sonic worlds? Sadly I used to ask about how toppy the hi-hats were. That was one of the <laughs> questions that I always had in my arsenal of questions um, and, and some people did actually look bemused but that was more likely the singers um, from the stables where they didn't know what hi-hats actually were because they'd left by that point because they yes. put the vocal track down. <laughs> This was the age of mega pop, and later on in the show we'll be discussing why the pop of the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s was so noisy, and the pop of now is so well manicured and polite. Also with us is uh, probably Sean's ultimate boss from the Smash Hits days, David Hetworth, who himself once edited Smash Hits and then went upstairs to oversee Smash Hits and Q and Mojo and the biggest stable of music magazines in Britain. He also co-presented the BBC's Whittle Test and Live Aid and his book Uncommon People, The Rise and Fall of the Rockstars is out now. In a bit, we're going to be talking to him about his feature in Be There magazine where he names the greatest session musicians of all time. Hello, David. Welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Nice to have you here. We're we're here thanks to some extremely high-end loudspeakers. Uh, For a lot of listeners, sound quality is absolutely paramount, but a lot of pop producers will test drive a finished mix on a little tiny radio or in a a car stereo, won't they? I I first heard about that years ago, that Pete Townsend used to do this in the 60s. He used to to take it out into the car and play it in the car to work out whether it was going to be hit. Because obviously that's in the days when everything was heard on a tiny transistor radio on, on kind of... AM, or medium wave, or whatever. Uh, but it's funny. The the um, I was doing a radio program. This was me about twenty years ago now on GLR of Blessed Memory, mm-hmm. formerly previously prior to BBC Radio London. And I, I was in a studio with a pair of knackered old speakers on the top of the on the top of the console, and I was interviewing Brian Eno. And in between, as he played records, he came around and stood behind me and said, these speakers are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> if you're Brian, you know. <laughs> just really liked them, you know. So much of it is taste. I interviewed Brian, you know, once uh, in the cafe outside New York uh, Central Park Zoo. And I asked him, one point I asked him a question, and he just held his finger in the air 
for about 30 seconds and then said, can you send me the recording of that bit of silence, please? And I said, why? When you could hear the monkeys in the background from the park, I want it. So non-Maureen. Non what was your first music-playing device, David? Oh, good grief. Well, literally, I remember a wind-up 78 gramophone, 78 RPM gramophone, good which we inherited from our grandparents. Now, I don't think we had a proper record player until about 1957 or something like that. It would be, it'd be your basic kind of, not even a down set, I would imagine. Did you, have to, play, that. Did you have to play your rock and roll 45s at 78? Because it didn't have a 45 setting. <laughs> no, it did have a 45 setting. And in those days, you used to have a 16 setting as well. Oh, I remember Extra that. slow did, yes. for, uh, for playing, very I often remember. for playing uh, spoken word records, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or langu language, linguaphone records and so forth. You tell that to today's vinyl revival kids. <laughs> they should bring back 16 RP a bit more. Get more on your record, I think. That thing of testing records uh, on, on, a, on a really cheap speaker. Do you think they're testing them on earbuds and phone speakers now, the tiniest little, tiniest window possible? Because radio's changed, hasn't it? It's, yeah. it's the treble. It's about hearing it on the treble thing where you've got no high or low frequencies. So that's yeah. why you use car radio. Now radio sounds so different and it's all this big wall of sound, which we will talk about Ooh. later. Well, I absolutely, think. yes. And one of the things that Dolly are pretty work. much against is that flattening of everything yeah. from, into just a yeah, big yeah, yeah, wall yeah. of loudness. Very modern thing. Yeah. We are against all of this. We are for amazing sound at all times. Sean, what was your first music-playing listening device? When I was 11, my dad gave me this second-hand briefcase. And I'm thinking, why does my dad give me a second-hand briefcase? He expects me to go to work. He opened it up and it was a portable radio with a record player on it. But it doubled up as you could take it on the train if you oh, wanted wow. to hide. And I used to listen to John Peel sort of from 11 onwards just because I was interested in the device and what it did. It didn't have a tape recorder, but you could play 45s on it. You could listen to AM radio. And it was amazing because it sort of... The sound was terrible, but it brought me this world that I'd never heard before. Sounds like something from The Man From Uncle. <laughs> it, it was Listening to Uncle like that, on a briefcase. I wish I that. kept it, as we all say. The people who play on your favourite record might not necessarily be who you think they are, especially if that prized single or album was recorded in the busy 1950s and 60s when studios were expected to crank out two or three A-grade tunes a day, and nobody had time to hang around waiting for the muse to descend upon the keyboard player. These were the heyday of the session musician, the dependable hired professionals who might be playing in the, on a middle-of-the-road ballad one day, an out-and-out -out rocker another day, and three minutes of shiny pop by the end of the week. David Hepworth knows his pop history, so we asked him to choose the ten greatest session men and women from a time when nobody had any qualms about replacing an iffy drummer for the day, even if, as you'll hear later, that drummer was a Beatle. With the advent of sampling, sequencing and Pro Tools, session men are not in the same demand, but when it comes to the classics, as David writes, the fingerprints of the great session men are all over our memories. David, it took a while for the recording industry to abandon its Tin Pan Alley instincts, didn't it? The, the, the idea that only the people who wrote this song could possibly be allowed to play it didn't really kick in until the end of the 60s. Oh, absolutely. That came, came way later, you know. It was, it was a kind of competence-dominated you know, industry in the early days. You know, get the, get the guy who can sing in tune, mm. get the guy who's in his bass tuned properly and can, can pick up this thing very, very fast. You know, you, you, you need pros. And uh, it was interesting. I did a thing the other week, a live event with, where I was with a jazz orchestra, a proper jazz mm. orchestra, mm. And when they were doing their run-through in the, in the afternoon, they'd run through a number, and then the conductor would go, 
can you just try bar 43 again? And they go straight back to bar wow. 43. And I thought, I've never heard a rock and roll band <laughs> remotely <laughs> capable of doing that. You Most know, rock and roll bands would say, what's a bar? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Or they go yeah. to the bar. Yes. <laughs> so, no, I, I'm fascinated by the, these people because I'm a great admirer of kind of, uh, of their extraordinary professionalism and their complete lack of snobbery. Yeah. And, you know, they, they would turn up at the studio in Los Angeles or London or New York or whatever. And with no clue whether they were going to be doing, you know, Pinky and Perky or or, or the Beatles or mm. absolutely anything in between. Uh, and they would, they would quite happily turn their hand to it. And it's extraordinary to me the kind of creativity that these people managed to put in tiny little details of records. Because they obviously were not in a position to say to the songwriter, can you rewrite this? I don't like this or yeah. I don't think the lyrics are good enough. They just interjected these absolutely, you know, the, these little details that we're still in love with years later. And one of my favourites that I actually mentioned in the piece is most of these session men were men. But, you know, one of the one of the most famous session players was one called Carol Kay, still with us now, uh, played bass in the, in the 60s and 70s in what was known as the Wrecking Crew in mm. Los Angeles, the guys who played on, you know, Beach Boys records, Phil Spector records, all those kind of things. And uh, and if we go and listen to a record that people still regard as one of their favourites, which is Wichita Line Mum by Glenn Campbell. And Glenn Campbell, don't forget, was also a former session man who turned to singing when he couldn't, oh. couldn't make enough money as a session man, which is extraordinary if you think about it. And uh, she interjected this, I think, five-note bass pattern right at the beginning of it. That's her invention. Oh, wow. Mm. And uh, I, th- I think that's a wonderful memorial mm. to have, mm. you know, mm. now that you know that. I think you mentioned another great descending bass part that she contributed to. Well, she, she did loads of these. She did The Beat Goes On by Sonny and Cher, which, you mm. know, is a great de- descending bass part, but probably the most famous one of all. And she was one of two bass players who played the bass on These Boots Are Made For Walking mm-hmm. by Nancy Sinatra. Mm. And, of course, Nancy Sinatra, I've seen Nancy Sinatra interviewed about this. She said, I've played that song all over the world thousands of times since with very good musicians and nobody can make it sound yeah. the way they yeah. made it sound, you know, because it, it is a fingerprint, you know. that's the, they, they were doing this with their hands. But also, I mean, that's the bit you remember from that record. Ding, 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 Absolutely. ding. Absolutely. There are loads of bass. Mm-hmm. The, other, the other classic that uh, is, uh, is Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side, you know, mm. which he did. Demoed in 1971, I think, or something. And if you listen to his early demos, it's just a kind of standard Lou Reed song. There's nothing remarkable about it at all. But he goes into Trident Studios in in the middle of Soho in 1972, I think it is, and uh, and they have Herbie Flowers turns up to his book to play the bass, and Herbie turns up with both his double bass and his electric bass. Mm-hmm. Because he knows if he can play two instruments, he gets double money. (laughs) (laughs) And so they doubled up. And, of course, what's the thing that everybody still knows and loves about Walk of the Wild Side? It's the... It's that Mm. bass line. Mm. Now, Herbie Flowers probably got 35 quid for his day's work. Mm. Lou Reed got a career. It's astonishing, isn't it? It is absolutely amazing. But, you know, these people were very often not, uh, you know, not bitter about it at all. Although Claire Torrey, who was the singer on uh, Pink Floyd's Great Gig in the Sky from Dark Side of the Moon, and was just brought in. They had a tune. They just said, sing over the top of it. 
So she sang over the top of it. She sang, sang what she thought was expected, which tended to resort to the word baby. And they stopped her and said, we're Pink Floyd. Don't say baby. <laughs> and so she went back and just made it kind of wordless. And, and then found it was, you know, famous all over the world. And years later was cut in for part of the songwriting credit for that, uh, you know. So she's probably got some kind of pension. Out of yeah, it. to a large extent, that, that is the song. Um, or it's, it's the part of the song that sticks in the head, isn't it? It is. Now, not a lot of, well, people, some people may know this, but not a lot of people know that Jimmy Page had had a huge session career before. Jimmy Page. the public Jimmy Page. Well, as alongside John Paul Jones, bass player of yeah. Led Zeppelin, you know, that's where they knew each other. You know, these were guys, John Paul Jones was a big arranger. Uh, but... Uh, but that they would play on Dusty Springfield records and Donovan records and all this kind of stuff. And and Jimmy Page, it was very young at the time and relatively untried. They got him because he could ape absolutely any record electric guitar style. He could do it really, really quickly and also could do it accurately. And so if you were doing it three or four times, he would do it the same way yeah. absolutely every time, you know, because these guys were, were capable of concentrating in a way that probably even the most gifted musician from bands might not have been you know to be able to do those things while somebody's standing over you with a stopwatch and thinking this is costing me money you know yeah takes a particular mental attitude you know and he clearly had it and that's him on i can't explain by the who is it this is one of the guitars on i can't explain now what you find also about these guys is they tend not to over talk what they did Mm. So, you know, people think, I can't explain. Does that mean he played the slashing guitar at the beginning? Well, Pete Townsend probably wouldn't like it if everybody thought he did. And so Jimmy Page is enough of a diplomat mm -hmm. <laughs> to say, I played one of the guitars <laughs> on that record. I don't remember exactly what I did. Sean, you know, you're an, you're an indie rock person and a pop person and an electronic music person and probably not a classic rock person in mm -hmm, the same mm -hmm. way. Have we lost something now that kind of the big artists tend to be? They're either all, either a one-person band. They write and produce everything themselves on a, on a MacBook or a small studio. Mm. Or if they're a big-ticket pop star, they probably don't so much record with musicians as they kind of select finished swatches created by producers, and then they go and there's this word they vocalist vocaling. We're going to do some vocaling. They don't yes. know what the song is about until the very moment they come into the. To, until they put in a, a vocal on it. Have we lost a bit of something because people aren't in a room? Yeah, I think this idea of jamming, there's an idea that you're, you're around your uncle's house and he's got a garage and you're pile in there because you're allowed to make some noise and you jam and you play, what, how, you play the music that you like when you're a formative band and it's yeah. usually hits by other people and then that jamming then fuses and that hit might then you're still sort of riffing and improvising and then a new idea comes out of it. I don't know how much that is done so much because... Say you can sit down at a computer and you can start mm. composing, you can have musical knowledge, you can just be doing it by ear. Maybe that has been lost, but I'd like to think that people are still, you know, in garages working out something and playing very, very long, the 40 minute. The tedious bits, but there's a magic, you know, in one minute that they can make a hit I, out of. I'm sort of more imagining that it probably does, if you're a young musician, it does you good to be in a room with somebody who's an old musician who can play your kind of instinctively composed thing in a slightly brilliant new way, you know, much as the things that Dave's described. You know, if you're a hot new indie band, mm. you know, to have that 
drummer who can play metronome spot on rather than your mate from the pub might be an improving thing I don't know but maybe but I think bands are actually far more disparate than we think they're a collection of individuals yeah. and in the photos they all look like they're the gang but they've been they've come from different sources and especially your rhythm section often come from a very different listening place so it yeah. might be a bit jazzy and it's the fusion of those elements that makes it exciting and brings something new yeah what I think is interesting about the focus on the, on the session musicians I think it calls into question the whole question of authorship of the song. Well, yeah. where there's a hit, there's a rich. Well, well absolutely, which there <laughs> certainly is. Yeah. And there's no greater example of this than I, I do urge anybody who goes on YouTube to go and listen to Wilton Felder's isolated bass part from the Jackson 5's I Want You Back. Oh. Now, Wilton Felder was a member of the Crusaders who was a saxophonist. His bass was his sideline. Go and listen to that. And you think... How could anybody else claim to have written that song mm. but Wilton Felder? Wilton Felder plays the bit you dance to. Yeah. You know, it's the performance is what is what made the record, not the song, really. Yeah. The song's just one element. It's what these guys delivered is absolutely remarkable to me. You know, and I've, I also mentioned Jack Ashford, who plays on loads of Motown records and very often just plays the triangle. <laughs> oh, somebody wonderful. pointed to me out, out to me a few years ago. What's going on by Marvin Gaye is all about the triangle. Yeah. Go back and listen yeah, to that record. He's absolutely right. But Young Americans was written by that David Bowie, wasn't it? He wrote the songs, and they were very plinky plonky David Bowie songs, oh. apparently. And he got in the musicians that would fuse it and make soul, jazz, funk, and the white boy soul stuff that we know very well. And it was as a result of those jamming sessions and them all playing in the studio before they recorded anything that brought us the sound. It wasn't the songwriter. So no, I think absolutely. it's very true, it's collaborative. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, David has chosen a song for each of his ten great session men and women, and we're going to add them to our title playlist too, so you can try and spot which of your bands is playing suspiciously well. Saying in the studio, everybody has a favourite song, but there's more to the truly great records than just notes on the page and vo voices in the mic. There's the world of sound that can only be created by visionary production. It can be epic and towering or disarmingly intimate, but it's what takes you to a different place. We're asking all of our guests to name their favourite single piece of production, the one track where they literally can not believe their ears. Sean Pattenden, what's your favourite piece of production? My favourite piece of production is something that was done very fast and part the reason why I like it because conceptually it's a very, very quick record. Most records get made and they take months to come out. It's Instant Karma by John Ono Lennon or John Lennon and the Pastor Ono Band, depending on what you read. And the song was written in the morning, on a January morning. It was recorded that evening at Abbey Road um, and it was released within 10 days. Um, what's so incredible about the song is it sounds fresh. I'm not the biggest Beatles fan, but there's something about John Lennon breaking free and suddenly that sort of cry of at last, you know, and there's a sense of freedom from that record. What you've got on it is Phil Spector's production and what he does, two things, very similar. So he does something to the drums and he does something to the vocals and both is delay. It's just studio delay. It's, it, it's no amazing fancy trick. Nothing's been reversed or cut up in any way like that. He just puts a drum delay of just a few, few moments after that drum, which is incredible. And with the drumming, which is by Alan White, also is playing a 4-4 beat, but is allowed to do something called fills. We all know what fills are, is when uh -huh. the drummer gets a bit into a chorus or into a bridge. The fills are out of metre, so they're not in the same time as the verse. So you're getting this incredible 
and it is a literal bash with a delay and then suddenly out of meter and then back into line again. You've also got the vocals coming in. They're incredibly stark. They're John Lennon saying instant karma's going to get you um, in various different forms, but the same delay is on the vocal. So it's quite alarming in a way. It mm. disarms you when you listen to it. And that pop of of studio technique on that song, you can't divorce the two at mm. all, but that studio technique takes that song and puts it right in a different realm. And as I say, it, it you can listen to it morning, day and night and it will sound... It's fresh every time. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I sound like an advert, but it, it, it's, it's quite incredibly real and new sounding. It's probably one of the first records to deliberately sound wrong. Mm. And deliberately sounding wrong is now a major part <laughs> of making records. Yeah. Hip hop deliberately sounding wrong is good. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and that just sounds odd. It's slightly odd. It sounds as if it's being played by a car that's going past the door. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's just—I remember the first Maybe time I heard it. I thought they, they haven't got that right. They haven't finished it, or something like that. But that is—is is its catchy quality. Is and that then, strangeness about it? That kind of out of kilter nature of it. What's your choice, Dave, for the best? Well, mine is a kind of—it's—it's it's just because it illustrates its speed, I suppose. Also, like Sean, it go 1955. A guy called Bumps Blackwell, who probably wasn't even called a producer at the time, was sent by Specialty Records to New Orleans to record Little Richard. And Little Richard hadn't had a hit at that time, and uh, they were—they had Fats Domino's band in, in this tiny little studio. Everybody in the same room. And nothing was going very well. And so they went across the road at lunchtime and little Richard got on the piano and started playing this absolutely filthy song. <laughs> and uh, and Bump said, what's that as catchy? And he said, uh, well, it's just a thing I made up called Tutti Frutti. And, uh, and it, it explained sexual practices, which at the time were illegal in, in all 50 states. And uh, Bump, who's desperate for hits, says... We're going to record that. And Little Richard said, you can't possibly do that. You know, the <laughs> words are filthy. He says, don't worry. And he calls over this woman called Dorothy Bostry as a waitress who fancies herself as a poet. And he says, sing that song to this woman. So he does. She writes down the lyrics, goes away 15 minutes later, comes back with the kind of bowdlerized words. <laughs> oh, that and we call the radio clean version. <laughs> yes. And they recorded Tutti Frutti in two takes at the very end of the session. And if you listen to it now, many years later, it still sounds like men thinking that you can hear the sweat falling off. I'm like, oh, my God, how are we going to do this? You know, yeah. they're hanging on for grim death. You know, they've never done anything like this before. And they're absolutely against the clock. You know, so I think that's my that's my case of one kind of. Production genius. There's all kinds of yeah. different production genius. But making a quick, immediate decision and sticking with it and doing it quickly is probably one of the good I, I think, I see, But Again, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Similarity, actually, in, in both, as you yeah. say. Yeah. Let's do this now. Decisiveness. Because <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know what bands are like? If they can avoid making their mind up, <laughs> they'll avoid making their mind up. <laughs> if you listen to a random selection of everyday pop in the mid-1960s, alongside the genteel ballads and the show tunes that dominated even in the Beatles' years, you'd have heard a lot of noise. The car factory clang of Motown, the electrifying abrasion of guitars suddenly amplified to new levels, even that jarring, window-shaking, world-changing, atonal chord at the start of a hard day's night. Try the same experience in the 70s and you'll get the feral stomp of glam rock with its hooligan chants and its clapping. In the 1980s, it was colossal drums and scorchingly raw synthesizers. In the 90s, all of the above and more. 
before. Even the most popular pop used to build its excitement on noise. Noise that still sounds great on high-end speakers, as it did on transistor radio. But now, not so much. The dominant sound of radio pop is clean and wholesome. The slowed-down minor-key version of the old dance hit or the heartfelt ballad. Even hip-hop and R&B are more Frank Ocean and Blood Orange than they are Wu-Tang Clan and N.W.A. So where did the noise go and is it ever coming back? Sean Patton, you started on Smash It in the early 90s when the kind of Stock Aikman and Waterman era was kind of giving way to the Take That boy band era and bands like Blair and Oasis were considered pop acts. Where do you think the noise has gone? I think the noise has changed, Ah. is what I think. I think it's about dynamic range. It's Mm. about technology taking over. And records sound different now, and the radio sounds different now than it did even in the 90s, which isn't really that long ago. Um, Dynamic range is now you have a thing called compression, so everything sounds loud. And I think it's changed people's songwriting because they know how it's going to sound on the radio. They know how it's going to sound on a CD. Something about compression is a wall of sound. So in a way it's noisier, But maybe in a way to counteract that, songwriters say, OK, we're going to take things down a little, do 90 BPM and we'll sing the minor key version, as you're saying, Mm. of whatever popular hit. So I think it's changed. Um, Autotune has changed things as well. And I think autotune has changed the way that people write music. So I wouldn't say it's less noisy. I would say that we're confronted with a different sort of noise. It's a bit like being smashed with a Mm. plate on the head. But something that Dave mentioned earlier, talking about uh, instant karma, a record that mm. sounds wrong. Yes. Even in sort of 80s pop, you listen to those old stock and Aiken and Waterman records, there is almost, although they were huge hits and designed to be huge hits, there's almost something wrong in there, a bit of sort of deliberate little bit of sonic ugliness. They were made very quickly as well, so yeah. it's similar because they were following the Motown template of mm. Churn Em Out. We're going to be a factory. That's why they were called the Hit Factory. Um, a Taylor Swift record, 1989, is in dynamic range louder than um, Ace of Spades by Motorhead. Is it so really? we actually do have scientifically louder records than we used to and the radio is louder. So I do think hmm. something about that stock and yes, they can sound a bit kind of garage at some points yeah. now in retrospect. But I'm gonna I'm gonna slightly argue with this because oh, yeah. noise and loudness are not the same thing. Loudness is, as you say, lack of dynamic range. It's mm. the turning of everything yeah. up and the levelling of everything off. Yeah. Noise is um is Motown using the clank of a chain from a car production line as a percussion noise. It is uh, a, that Phil Collins epic drum roll where it's there to kind of disrupt the sound. It's that you know that gated drum, those eighties mm. drums yes. that snap off. Yes, noise is sound uh, very dated now. Don't it sounds dated now. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, like all dated things, it immediately comes back and Absolutely. sounds fantastic. <laughs> <on the money. laughs> yeah. Yeah. That last patch of noise was full of those yeah. lindrums. Yeah. yeah, or it's like that. It is the distortion of a guitar in a place where nothing else is distorted. It's not necessarily the dynamic range. It's the, it's the deliberate use of an abrasive sound. I'd also say the commercialisation of music, where it's used on everything now from adverts to films. You say that and we think, yeah, it always was, but no, it wasn't. Yeah. You didn't get music in the tabloid newspapers in the late 80s and then suddenly, after Live Aid, lots of things changed. So we are confronted by music all the time. It's in our face so much more than it was or in our ears. Mm. Um I do think that that makes a difference and therefore somehow maybe the more music there is, the more soft it has to sound. Otherwise, we'd all be having a bit of a breakdown. I suppose so, because the, the, the areas that I'm talking about there, music was kind of on the margins. It was the interest of, it was, it was the interest of odd people. You it had was, to go to a shop to buy music. Yes, now, yes. that's a real difference. You, so you don't have clamor, to go anywhere. Yeah, so it had to clamour for your attention. Yeah. Dave, what do you think? I mean, because... You know, now, there's some really interesting points there. Uh, and it's, it's funny when you suggested this, I actually went and listened to the whole top ten. Mm. which is my, not my normal habit. And you're absolutely right. 
They all sound as if they were made by the same artist. And I think what happens in industries of all kinds is a process called saming, where yeah. whatever is successful, people seek to ape it. Hmm. And most music used to pop records used to be kind of made in secret. They went away in a room. They had a song. They recorded it. There was a producer and so forth. And then it was exposed to the world. Nowadays, everything is done by committee. Mm. You know, they, they, these these records are put together by committee. You know, bits are flown in from across the Atlantic and so forth. You know, everybody knows what the, what all the bits are, and it's probably been mixed with the record company standing behind mm. the person, mm. and and there's a tendency to to be to to make it like the last thing that was number one. You know, yeah. And and I, I I've often felt about uh, about sound that. Uh, one of the things that kind of went wrong with the recording is when it became a visual thing. Ah, when yes. you could see it on the screen. You can see the, and the same thing as buys with, with uh, print. Yeah. As soon as you can see a design on the screen, everybody's got an opinion. Yeah. Whereas so when the, it was somebody going point. on their yeah, corner and yeah. putting their arm around their paper, mm. they didn't have an opinion mm. until it was finished. So that visual representation of music will be a waveform. Absolutely. Yeah. And the temptation... Goes the theory is that when you see a when you see a trough, you yes. fill it. You th- something needs to go there. Absolutely. Well, absolutely, and that's also compression. You can see there's yeah. a thing called normalising. Mm. Um, you see the waveforms, and when you've pressed normalise and it's processed, the waveforms are bigger and fatter. So you can see, you know, you get that endorphin rush of, hey, we've created more. Yeah. Um, and so that goes with the sound design as well, I think. It's interesting to talk about, you know, when Dave mentioned the, the saming of things. I know one or two producers who, who have described to me the way that a modern big ticket pop album is made. And a select, it's not that you'd imagine a selection of songs is made and they are then recorded and charted up as best as possible and got out. 60 or 70 songs may be yeah, recorded absolutely. and there'll be a beauty contest at the end yeah. and mm. every 30 producers will be trying to get on the album but of course what that leads you towards is the idea of the 12 songs that the f- least number of people objected to yeah. it's yeah. not the best songs it's yeah. the ones that nobody didn't like there's a wonderful book about this whole business called the, uh, is it called The Song Machine by John Seabrook from The New Yorker mm-hmm. and it, it's just about he went inside what he calls the track and hook system of, uh, of making records which is pioneered by the Swedes yeah of course v- very yes. often you know uh, and this is ex- exactly that, that idea that you start with the rhythm track and you completely build on top of it you know? mm. but there are a group um, a tech group who do monitor the difference in sound um, and pop hit singles over the years and BPMs have got lower so they're around 90-ish for your average pop single remember Pet Shop Boys is about 120 or something so it gives you 120 you can dance to very easily 90 you can sort of slope around yeah yeah. Yeah. so so that has got lower so I would concede that I I do find it strange that the caricature of future music used to be kind of atonal and electronic you know when you saw science fiction movies in the 80s (laughs) in the 21st century they'll be listening to this kind of jarring but what you're actually listening to is a girl with a ukulele doing Love Will Tear Us Apart on the train station is really quiet and really polite Brave New World it's sex Saxophones. Saxophones. Yes, there you go. play in the future. Mm. Bring back the noise, I say. Mm-hmm. Well, before we finish the show, because it's all about the backroom people, we asked our guests to choose their studio hero, the person whose name on the label is enough to make them want to buy the record, if the record even exists. Sean Pattenden, who's your studio hero? Delia Derbyshire is my studio hero, and many people will know her from the Doctor Who theme tune that she worked with with Ron Granger in 1963. She was part of the Radiophonic Workshop for the BBC. But um, alluding to your intro, there are hundreds of her tracks that haven't been released that are in a lock-up in the University of Manchester 
I think it's the Screen Sound, um, Screen Studies Archive. Um, and I don't know if they'll ever be out, but she was a pioneer. It's about music concrete is, is, is where she's coming from and it's found sounds and field recordings. But this was a, the days before commercial synthesizers and, of course, any sampling at all. And she literally did cut up tape for a yeah. living in a studio. And it sounds difficult, some of it. It's funny. She recorded with Anthony Newley. Paul McCartney was going to do a version of Yesterday with Delia Derbyshire instead of The Strings. Um, she has a fabulous history. She died in 2011. And although she's not underrated as such as no one's ever heard of her, she's still not lauded enough. And mm. I think she was, she influenced also lots and lots of electronic bands. Everyone you can imagine she influenced. She, she was a really big pioneer. Yeah, and it, I mean, I played, because I'm actually a Doctor Who nerd, I played <laughs> the Doctor Who theme through the Dolly Callistos, these beautiful speakers we've got. And, you know, I know that I've heard this song thousands of times, mm. thousands, mm. every Saturday night of you. But to hear it again oh, I through speakers that cost more than the entire building, probably, that this thing was recorded. It was yes. a very, very... That separate the sound out yeah, properly. That's what they were interested and in. And this yeah. is when bass lines had to be made by not just sort of, you know, sellotaping the tape together, mm. but making a length of tape that was maybe 30 feet long and holding it taut with a pencil so mm. that it would run mm. around the head at the right rate. It's Absolutely. amazing stuff. Yeah. Delia Derbyshire, definitely. David Hepworth, who's your studio hero? Oh, this is I, slightly facetiously. I, I chose Eli Fontaine. Who, you may well say, mm-hmm. uh, you probably won't find his credit over on an awful lot of records, but you know Eli Fontaine's most famous uh, bit because he played the saxophone intro of What's Going On by Marvin Gaye and he didn't realise he was being recorded. Wow. <laughs> he thought they were just warming up. And uh, so he just played that. Nobody was expecting him to play it at all. And, uh, and afterwards, when they were listening to it, and Marvin Gaye said, what were you doing there? He said, oh, I was just noodling. He said, well, you noodle beautifully. Mm. They left it on the record and sent him home. It was <laughs> the only thing he did. He got, the, he got the standard session man's rate. But, if you, you know, we can all close our eyes right now yeah. and we can imagine the beginning of what's going on and, and actually, what Eli Fontaine did. That sax bit is actually where the record really begins because that, that really tells you here's where you are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exquisite goofing. This is what we need. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Be There With Dali. Thanks to our guests, Sean Pattenden and David Hetworth. It's almost like being in a magazine office with you two again. <laughs> See you again soon. You can read David's piece on Session Men and a whole lot more in the new issue of Be There. You can get yours for free by going to facebook.com slash dali.loudspeakers. And if you've enjoyed this show, you might like the others in the series. Search Be There With Dali on your favourite podcast app or go to audioboom.com and search Be There With Dali for a direct download of this and our other shows. And we're up on the Dali Facebook pages well thanks for listening and we'll see you next time be there with dali loudspeakers was presented by andrew harrison and the studio producer was me jack claren be there is a podmasters production